Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, June 15th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. So uh, Joe Biden has been in Europe and England meeting with everybody. And we talked, made some jokes yesterday about how he said the queen was like his mother. But he had a press conference yesterday afternoon. Uh, Noah, Abe, you guys watched it. What are your thoughts about the president's performance on his maiden trip abroad? I think we're probably two headlines that I took away from that press conference. The first being that... I don't remember the reporter who asked it, but he was asked about um, his forthcoming bilateral summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin and whether or not he still subscribed to the notion that Vladimir Putin was a killer. And the president responded with a very labored diplomatic response that led him to be silent for an agonizingly long period of time. It took the better part of a full minute, might have been a full minute, where he was just sort of gathering his thoughts and produced a word salad that I couldn't even recall if you asked me to. But the bottom line was he was engaged in a very diplomatic effort to avoid saying what either what he thought or confirming his previous impressions of Vladimir Putin. Subsequently, he was asked by some enterprising reporter using this obnoxious trick that they do where they want to just talk about domestic politics abroad, that allies are concerned about domestic events in the United States, notably the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Um, and Joe, and he was asking, you know, Joe Biden used this pivot point, which he was led to by this reporter to just dump all over the Republican party. Um, which is, you know, to, to say the very least, to be the most charitable I possibly can, gauche, impolitic. Um, it would be like uh, the Republican Party in the United States has no political power in the federal level. And to dump all over them in this venue, in this setting abroad, is, is, so, is so sordid. Um, that, Not only that, I'm please. sorry. Not Abe, only that, if, if the point is that when you're abroad, you're, you're especially in Biden's case, is supposedly there to not project weakness, to correct for the, the, you know, the sort of chaos, the appearance of chaos and the reality of chaos over the past few years. Um, to go there and um, talk down uh, the Republican Party actually says terrible things about the state of, of, of America to the rest of the world. It is a, that, is a, that is a very weak place for him to project us from. It would have been ugly and uh, uh, undiplomatic even if he hadn't been this, you know, obnoxiously false candidate of, uh, you know, uh, restoring norms and civility and decency and, and um, you know, conventions like the notion that politics ends at the water's edge. I mean, that's the sort of thing that the guy was elected on, right? I mean, can you even imagine Boris Johnson, for example, coming to Washington and just dumping all over labor, which right. has precisely zero influence politically in the UK? It would just be, an, it, 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 beyond being a non sequitur, it would just be an ugly display. But it's okay because as the media informed us, Jill Biden wore a jacket that said love on the back of it. So it's fine. It's all good. And you're just overreacting here, No, That's sarcasm for our listeners who are not getting it. So let's, <laughs> so I, let's, just, I just want to insert one thing to add to what Noah said about um, Biden's comments on Putin. I agree it was overwhelmingly word salad. Um, and I don't want to make too much of this. But one of the things he said about Putin was that he is smart. He is tough. 
and he is, as they used to say, a worthy adversary. Um, it's a weird thing. You're there to, to sort of, you know, talk about policy and whatever, not to sort of assess the man, Vladimir Putin, in, I would, I would argue, you know, um, kind of glowing terms in a way. I mean, what else does Putin want to be but a smart, tough adversary? I don't know how Putin does this. Uh, it, it, it's mysterious because uh, uh, this now, uh, he is now the uh, fourth president in a row um, to sort of flatter uh, Putin at the beginning of his term, right? Bush said he looked into Putin's heart and he saw good there. Um, I, I can't remember what Obama said, but, you know, Obama tried to do the reset and the button and all of that. And then, of course, there was uh, Trump um, with his uh, very peculiarly positive take on 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 Putin, and now there's there's Biden. Uh, wh- what it is that I think the intelligence agencies must tell these presidents about how they should talk about Putin in a way that will get Putin to be cooperative seems to be very consistent now over two decades, and it's really worked brilliantly, hasn't it? Like <laughs> you know, flattering Putin really gets Putin to do what you want Putin to do. Well, um, I guess it gets- can be charitable. We can be charitable and assume that that's just basic diplomatic protocol to say nothing of just simple niceties. But Joe Biden was also asked, which is a very real question: What the hell this is supposed to accomplish? What is our agenda? What do we want from him? I want. What concessions I want to back are off. we prepared to make? I what want, what I, concessions I, are you prepared to okay. make? I want and, to back- and, but Joe Biden briefly he did a very Trumpian thing where he said, "I'm not going to show my cards." I'm not going to yeah. tell you anything I want yeah, to but, accomplish in this meeting, which is, again, you know, sort of a smokescreen. Donald Trump didn't have any agenda items that he wanted to achieve. I'm not sure Joe Biden does either. You don't have to flatter Putin when you're going into a meeting with Putin. You don't have to do anything. You can say, we're having a meeting. Uh, we're we're going to talk about important things. And, uh, and you know, I hope we're going to have a frank and civil exchange. There's blah, blah, blah. You don't have to, like, go into flattery. That's why I say the consistency of the positive blather about Putin at the beginning of presidencies to me suggests um, a, you know, uh, it's like Bartholomew and the Ublek or something, you know, the the soothsayers, the magicians uh, who function in the realm of the permanent foreign policy are constantly telling our leaders that, um, that it really works, you know, to kind of like... Um, flatter Putin or say nice things about these guys. It really, it softens them. And in fact, I think it's very plausible that it does the opposite and that therefore you have this kind of perpetual defense of this notion. Um, and there is absolutely no reason for it. Whereas as opposed to the word salad stuff, I will defend Biden on the word salad stuff. That gets back to uh, a, a criticism from the dawn of the media age of the, of the modern, you know, sort of television media age that Dwight Eisenhower would give press conferences at which he would talk gobbledygook and he would sound stupid. And then, and then liberals would say, Oh, Dwight, Dwight Eisenhower, the man who like, you know, ran world war two was stupid. And, 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 you know, not like Adlai Stevenson, who was an idiot Senator from Illinois, yeah. who had, who had a, who had a sort of gift of blather, right. That, that Ike was stupid and Eisenhower and, and Stevenson was just sort of an intellectual, you know, he was no more, in, you know, an intellectual than I'm a than I'm a decathlete, uh, but you know, he he knew how to sound good. And it turned out, as Eisenhower's press secretary um, wrote in a famous book called *The Hidden Hand Presidency*, that Eisenhower did this purposefully, like that he he would go out and he would speak double talk about things that he didn't want to talk about, 
to answer questions without answering them. And this was a very conscious choice. And I think, you know, when you're abroad, when you're talking about uh, complicated things that don't have, you should, you should as a president speak and speak word salad. Like that's, that's perfectly fine as a tactic. It's when you clarify, when you get clear and you start saying Putin is a worthy adversary. Okay. So you're saying Putin's an adversary. What's so worthy about him? What's the last thing that Putin did like two or three weeks ago? He took in an opposition leader and tortured him and forced him to make a hostage video. A 27-year-old guy, and it seems clear that, you know, that that his wrists were slashed or that he had been hung by his wrists upside down or something like that. That's who this guy is. That well, he, he is not he, worthy in any way. He went on. Putin went on NBC News. Was interviewed on NBC News, and when asked if he went around killing people, which we know he does to his political opponents, including on the soil of sovereign nations like the UK, poisons his enemies. He laughed. He laughed when he was asked about Chechnya. He he just laughed. So this idea, I agree. This idea that we he should be flattered seems very old school, Cold War era approached. You know that you'd see in the master's degree program of a of a foreign policy uh, graduate school, but not not effective. And anyone who watches his performances on television, just the average person, can see that. But it'd be one thing if he was speaking in vague terms for diplomatic purposes on a subject on which he hadn't ruminated about. He's muddying a subject on which he was extraordinarily clear. Couldn't be clearer. He's talking, he's backtracking, not being diplomatic, not being strategic in any appreciable way. Because he's he's said, oh, you know, I think Putin has admitted to some things that he's done. Couldn't be vaguer and also couldn't be more wrong. I don't, I don't recall any of that. So no, I don't, I don't detect a strategy at work here at all. Oh, I, but, but presidents do this all the time, particularly in foreign policy, where they make very resolute, moralistic, moral pronouncements about things. And then they actually have to go on and, like, you know, be president. And it turns out that sometimes the stuff that they say on the campaign trail uh, is something – it's been a long time since the campaign trail, you know, rhetoric on foreign policy has mattered that much. But it turns out you got to be a little uh, – you got to play a more real politic game and, like – downplay you know downplay your uh your moralism in favor of uh, a more practical approach so i i i myself don't fault biden for that particularly that seems very well within the parameters of a normal president and normal presidency i'm i'm more struck by i want to get back to the gop stuff um i i I think it's 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 interesting because um uh this is where Trump, uh, I'm sorry to sort of go back to this, but th- this is where Trump has changed our politics forever. Uh, we thought that Obama, uh, who would sometimes criticize domestic rivals abroad, that Obama had sort of like changed all the rules uh, because he did this in a very glancing way sometimes. Um, Trump, of course, upended everything. And nobody is going to do the kinds of things that Trump did. And so by moving the Overton, opening the Overton window, moving the whatever, uh, Biden can now play the same games, but look like he's kind of more reasonable uh, at it. And that's the, that when, when you want to know what it was that led people like me and others to say that Trump was unfit for the presidency, it wasn't just his own personal debate, whatever it was, that uh, presidencies have consequences and the way that our politics will function has consequences and that he has changed the dynamic 
he changed the way in which uh, politicians and people in the United States treat each other, talk about each other, handle each other. He took stuff that was nascent and maybe he just accelerated it because it would have happened anyway. Um, but now there's Biden who feels free to do something, uh, you know, uh, from a foreign uh, country that uh, if he had been president eight years ago, he wouldn't have done. It just wouldn't have happened. Like, it, nor would the demand have been made of him to do it. And and the constant refrain is going to be, well, the GOP deserves it. It's the GOP that doesn't accept the results of elections. It doesn't this and it's changed everything. It supports terror, domestic terrorism and all of that. All of that may be, uh, you know, kind of like the excuse. But... Um, Biden's also going to have to live within the parameters of his choice here. Like he made a choice to attack the GOP from abroad. And uh, okay, so I understand that is the general generic Democratic idea that the Republicans are recalcitrant. You can't make any deals with them. And so you should say whatever you want to about them. But, um, you know, uh, Biden just weirdly opens and then closes doors all the time. You know, he sort of opens a door to negotiations on infrastructure and then he goes on the attack or he, you know, or he gets mad at Joe Manchin. So he says Joe Manchin who votes with him hundred percent of the time is a Republican. Like these, this, his inconstancy following on Trump's inconstancy is making inconstancy a permanent and enduring feature of the presidency. And that is a huge problem well he like, also we I, can't have unstable you know having having unstable presidents whose policies and and whose relation to uh, other politicians and all that are unstable unpredictable and irrational means that you just you don't know where where, where you're going to be at any moment of the day this is it makes the ship of state not only a ship of state like unbalanced it means that we can't we don't know where we're going to be next week like, we don't know how policy is going to work next week or the week after. But he said, and he said something a little more extreme than I think we're acknowledging here, because he didn't just say, you know, oh, faux populism, the Republican Party is fractured. He called into question when asked whether he thought he might be running again against Trump in 2024. He called into question whether a, the GOP will even exist in 2024. And if you think about this from the perspective of domestic politics, you know, they control uh, all but the Supreme, I mean, the Supreme Court set aside, they control government right now. The Democrats are the party in power. And to suggest or or, or hint that you think your, your rival in a two-party system won't even be around in a few years, again, totally different circumstance. But imagine if Trump had said that about the Democratic Party and imagine what the reaction would have been. The reaction would have been, this is a threat. He's going to crush the opposition. This, I mean, there, were, there would have been a very different reaction, both to the tone and the substance of what Biden was doing. And I think he has gotten away by being bungling and bumbling and mistaking Syria for Libya and, oh, shucks, it's okay because he's so empathetic. He's gotten away with very confused thinking and very, as you say, John, confused messaging but eventually that has that's going to have consequences for him and for his party or at least it should uh you know i'm i'm just to take a a, a totally weird uh example out of out of nowhere this is not biden this is sort of democrats in general so um marjorie taylor green the qanon congresswoman you know loudmouth idiot embarrassment colossal embarrassment of course you know said this said these horrible things about the Holocaust. So yesterday, 
she took a tour of the Holocaust Museum and she came out at the end and said, I've made an error. I made an error. There is nothing comparable to the Holocaust. I shouldn't be comparing things to the Holocaust. But then did not, being asked a follow-up, did not retract her idea that Democrats were acting like Nazis. Okay? So Steve Cohen, congressman from Tennessee, goes on MSNBC and says, well, it's a Jewish guy, goes on and says, well, it's good, it's always good for people to apologize, but how dare she, you know, she, but she left this other part standing. Um, Steve Cohen in 2011 compared the Republican Party to the Nazis and said that they were Goebbels-like in their messaging. Uh, Ten years later, he feels totally free to speak as a sort of pundit, you know, wagging his finger at somebody else. This is what I mean by the Overton window stuff. So Steve Cohen says Republicans are like Nazis in 2011 because they won't, you know, because they don't like Obamacare. And in 2021, Marjorie Taylor Greene says Democrats are like Nazis for whatever reason. And that's beyond the pale. How dare anybody do this? Um, this is this is how the how our politics degrade over time. Like, I don't even know what to make of this because Steve Cohen is himself a, a very weird political figure and does weird stuff. Um, but the fact that he he actually himself had to kind of backtrack on his what he had said. He said, "I didn't really call them Nazis. I just said they were like Goebbels, which is an interesting you know distinction to try to make." Um, uh, you can read about this in uh, in, in Jewish Insider, the uh, the very fine daily daily newsletter. Um, it's just it's it, it's as though uh, it literally is the case that you can say anything, uh, and 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 your your past history, whatever you said before, all of that uh, will be discounted by people as long as they're on your side. And and uh, and and Biden is now approving this as sort of Noah Noah, Noah indicates. Like uh, I'm the guy who's going to turn the temperature down. I'm turning the temperature down. I'm restoring normalcy. That's the kind of person I am. And then he makes a direct partisan attack uh, on 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 the on foreign shores. Like uh, okay, good. So you are. So you're Trump. You're not. You're you're just you're just Trump too under under those conditions. Well, the other hypocritical thing that Biden says, so it's not, not only is he claiming to turn, turn the temperature down while dumping on the other party abroad, um, what about all the proclamations that America's back, baby, America's back, we're back. This is America's back, going, ab- going abroad, praising Putin and knocking your own, uh, uh, your own uh, 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 domestic uh, other party. Um, Taken in total, and I'm sorry, John, I, I understand the word salad um, sort of thinking that, that you're saying, but taken in total with his talking bad about his domestic uh, political antagonists and praising um, Putin, um, the, the overall projection of weakness, I think, is quite massive here. Um, and in no way does it, does it scream America is back. Look, I, 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 I can't, I can't deny that. I don't know whom America is back to. Right. By the way, that's that's part of the the issue here is he's going around saying America's back, and you know we we read this stuff about how now Europe likes likes America again. 
Uh, this again being a constant refrain, you know, like Europe hated America when Reagan was president. Europe hated America when Bush was president. Europe hated America when Trump was president. But it loves America as long as there's a a democratic president. It sort of makes you wonder if this is actually true, um, given the fact that uh, Europe, Europe itself, Europe. Uh, uh, is incl- as is as inclined to nominate and and uh, or whatever to put into power um, people uh, from the right of center parties uh, far more than left of center parties. I mean, well, uh, you know, when when who European- is Boris Johnson? Who is Boris Johnson? But the Brexit, uh, but the Brexit Prime Minister, who was Angela Merkel? Who who are these people? Like they're not, you know, they're not the left of center parties, and everyone, you know, this is just. Classic argle bargle crap from the media uh, talking to, you know, it's like if you talk to people on the Upper West Side, they're really happy that Biden is president. That doesn't mean everybody in America is happy that Biden is president. Well, when, yeah, they mean when, the affluent, educated, transatlantic think tankers with whom they in, interact, right. not the people who are working in the fields of Bordeaux yeah. who, who voted for Macron. When, yeah. Euro- when European leaders get along well with uh, American Republican presidents and administrations, which happens all the time, um, then the whole framework has shifted. Then the European leaders become part of the evil cabal. That right, that yeah, Blair, Europe, Blair, yeah, yeah Blair yeah. and Bush, right, exactly, yeah, yes. or you know, or Chirac and no, not Chirac because Bush hated Chirac, of course. Um, anyway, no, I, I'm just you know, this is a kind of. We're we're now playing kind of whataboutism game. I I, I want to talk about one other whataboutism game before I sort of uh, uh, move on. Uh, Michael Gerson, uh, former Bush uh, George W. Bush speechwriter, uh, columnist uh, for you know t- t- ten or twelve years now for the Washington Post, has an, a really egregious column today uh, in which he in which he says uh, wokeism is really bad. It's really really bad. Wokeism is bad. But you know what's worse? Republican authoritarianism. If you have to pick between left leftists being woke and Republicans like trying to assault our democracy, there's no choice. Republicans are worse. Who's saying you have to make a choice? This is I don't understand this notion. Um, uh, the simple fact is that you can reject both. Like we reject both, and he should be able to reject both. And the fact is that he is one of these people who has become so consumed by his own. Um, uh, fake virtue in opposing, theoretically opposing people who are nominally from his own party and his own deep emotional pain and upset at the Republican Party's radicalism and all of that, that he is now defending the Democratic Party's cowardice in confronting its own authoritarian, near-totalitarian wing uh, with its own uh, grotesque and monstrous logic about the about the root cause evil of the United States. I mean, that is bad. That is bad, bad, bad. And Michael Gerson is bad. And I'm saying this right here now. Bad, Mike. You're bad. That was a shameful piece of work. If well, you're it's, it's it's positioning masquerading as principle, right? It's positioning oneself in a very polarized political and cultural environment calling it principle. Um, and I agree, he should be able to say it's both. My question is, why won't he say? It's not just that he's bad, it's that there's some there's some reward for signaling to the other side on matters of race, 
that he feels he must do in the position he holds. And that's actually, that's a, that's a broader challenge. I think if you are a conservative intellectual, uh, there is a, there's still a kind of compulsory requirement of that. If you work in a mainstream environment, perhaps it's that. We encountered something like this in 2016 after Donald Trump won the nomination. And it was, you know, binary choice, which amounted to emotional blackmail. Uh, essentially that you have to subordinate your pangs of conscience to the broader political objective and just shut up because otherwise you're licensing the wrong sorts of people. You're giving you know credence to the wrong sorts of values and then migrated over to the left during Donald Trump's presidency. But it's the same manipulative impulse. Look, I just reject the notion that uh, we are being, we are being compelled to choose uh, between uh, people who say that the election was stolen and people who say uh, that the United States is a, you know, uh, it was born in an evil original sin from which it has never recovered. Um, to call that a false choice is the understatement of, uh, you know, of all world history. But those are the loudest voices in the room right now. That's the problem. So how do you mute those voices or allow new the, the, the more uh, complicated argument in when those are the two people shouting at each other? Because that's what he is supposed to do. That is what Michael Gerson, as a as a as a high principled op ed columnist who is supposed to tease out the strands of confusion. I mean, this is not a problem for Jonathan Rauch. This is not a problem for a lot of people. It's not a problem for Commentary Magazine. It shouldn't be a problem for him. And uh, and and it is it is the case. I think that you're right that that he is uh, he is paying some form of obeisance, consciously or unconsciously, to a mindset that says if you don't say X, you are effectively saying Y. And uh, all of intellectual life, in fact, uh, poses uh, imposes on people. Uh, who hold ideas, um, you know, who believe that ideas are more important than, you know, than, than, than partisanship or something like that. The ability to say that um, you, you, you can say that two things are bad on both sides and not, you know, somehow be responsible for advancing the interests of, of another side. Um, And, uh, Anybody want to defend? I mean, let me put it this way. Is there a defense of the idea? I'm playing devil's advocate here. Is there a defense of the idea that um, wokeism is a theoretical construct and the attack on democracy represented by Republicans refusing to accept the election um, is a practical problem that... uh, is there a defense for this view? One, one is an idea, and that idea is vague and evanescent and doesn't really have practical consequences. And the other actually affects like how we're going to go forward with elections and how we're going to you know change the way things work. Yeah, not at all. Um, okay. Because, no, only because there are so many practical uh, consequences to wokeism, from you know uh, hobbling of police. Uh, which means uh, more crime everywhere to um, the institution of critical race theory, which, which, you know, screws up our uh, curricula and, and, and uh, training to um, demonization of certain aspects of scholarship. 
Um, a, a lot, so much of it is made official and institutional and carries with it very real consequences. I will posit a theory, one I don't subscribe to, but while we're doing the <laughs> so we're all doing yeah, we're all being right. devil's advocates here. Right. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> so, um, wokeism as a practical matter is injurious to the social fabric, as evidenced in part by, uh, and most recently, the Biden administration's effort to subvert the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment by distributing funds, relief funds, COVID relief funds based on race, which was subject to an injunction in the courts. But if that's the sort of thing that becomes that becomes a, a creed to which Americans subscribe, then we're headed towards a dark age. However, the Republican Party's new ethos, um, and I'm writing a little bit about this on today, on the right, and it's not a dominant ethos, but it is one that has a lot of very prominent subscribers, and is, and is you hear it every day on on the airwaves on the right, and, and you read about it. Is in this antipathy towards procedural liberalism? Um, the adjective modifying liberalism there serves no purpose other than to uh, suggest that the noun is sort of grubby and supervisory and ephemeral and unequal to the cause. And that liberalism itself is unequal to this cause. And therefore, we should marshal all the forces at our disposal, institutions we control, institutions we don't control, to wield a cudgel to bludgeon our enemies back into submission. That is a very popular view on a small subset of the right, but a very vocal subset on the right. Um, and that is a species of an authoritarian tendency that I think we should all be hostile towards, suspicious of, and work against. It's so also comic. Oh, go ahead, Christine. I was just going to say, uh, not that we have a book club, but if we did, I would recommend all of our listeners read, reread if they haven't, if they've read it once before in college, as some of us did, uh, The Captive Mind, Milosh's look in the 1950s from the inside of what he called enslavement through consciousness, how totalitarianism works for intellectuals and why it worked, the accommodations they felt they had to make and their rationale for doing so. You know, the book was interesting because at the time, even the really rabid anti-communists were treated as suspect because they thought he wasn't tough enough on communists and on the authoritarian mindset. But what it does is I think get to this question we're asking, which is how do you have a complicated discussion of a lot of these ideas without being uh, called an, you know, an enemy of one side or the other, or without giving cover to ideas that you actually don't believe, but feel should be aired in the public sphere, for example. That I just, I feel like there, there, we've had these debates as it, intellectuals have been having these debates for centuries, but we need to kind of look back and see how they resolved them then and might give some insight for today. I mean, I, any recommendation that people read The Captive Mind by Cheshwa Milos, that's M-I-L-O-S-Z. Um, uh, if you haven't, go to go go to Amazon, get go, put it on your Kindle, where, however you read. It's um, it's it's short, uh, and it's um, and it's a work of genius. It's one of the great works of the 20th century, and uh, and I'm glad I'm glad you recommended it. The other thing about the procedural liberalism attack that I find comic um, is uh, that it, it 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 postulates somehow that um, the 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 people who are who are uh, advocating it have the means to defeat these enemies and push them back and take the you know and take take the high ground where the hell are these means coming from uh you know i mean if if the means are uh this you know notion that you should pass laws saying forbidding the teaching of the 1619 project i got i got news for those people uh first of all those are unconstitutional second of all 
uh, you advocate those kind of laws, they're going to come back at you with laws twice as right. bad and twice as bad and uh, about the things that you want and you believe in, and they're going to quash you like a bug. And that's, that's another also, yes. Go yeah, ahead. That's also procedural, and this is something that I'm writing about for the blog today. Uh, <clears throat> essentially, positing that I don't really understand how you anathematize an idea, and no idea deserves to be stigmatized and anathematized more than critical race theory, which is itself a constellation of a series of things that we've been talking about on the right for years. Intersectionality, Hillary Clinton's right to be believed, modern social justice activism, all of it is subsumed into this rubric, which makes it seem like it came from nowhere, but it didn't. We've been talking about this forever. And the reason why it's becoming so anathematized now and that it's manifesting in statutes is because of this procedural liberalism, because it was talked about in the public square and exposed, and because electorates support uh, um, uh, officials, elected officials who write statute, which have force of law. That is the liberal covenant to which you're subscribing and benefiting from, even as you denigrate it. I know of no other means by which we can anathematize an idea effectively and forever beyond convincing the people who subscribe to it that it is counterproductive to adopt it to your own objectives to to the pursuit of and, and securing a political office well mostly mostly i think um uh th- there are two ways that that happens one of which is uh that the idea is imposed uh, in part um and then the consequences are are so uh, horrific um, that it is either co- decisively and consciously rejected or more 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 to the point snuck away from slithered away from as though it was never tried or as though you never said that it was something you supported and you see oh. this you see this in the way people are respond the gaslighting on 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 critical race theory where supporters of it say things like I don't know why anybody says critical race theory. And people who are people on the right who are talking about critical race theory don't understand it. I mean, it's an idea that was explained by Professor Derek Bell of Harvard. Yeah, I know he did. I read his garbage. I've read his nonsense. I'm fully aware. I knew him before you did, probably. And the fact that he's a professor at Harvard doesn't mean jack. You know, like this is how you're defending it. It's like this is endorsed by a professor from Harvard. Yeah, the Ewing Dollar went to Harvard, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's there's a professor from Harvard who claims that aliens are running running the United States, by the way, a tenured professor at Harvard whose name I can't remember right now. And these tenets were, were sort of adopted in the dark of night. They weren't, they weren't subject to any sort of vote. It's not like taxpayer-funded institutions started forcing their white employees to internalize the racial discrimination and, and confess to it. Or, uh, you know, to the Biden administration, you know, uh, trying to distribute funds in racially discriminatory ways. All this stuff happened behind closed doors because they're afraid of public scrutiny. Right. Because the public won't accept it. So why would you limit public scrutiny to this idea that doesn't generate a lot of support when it's when it's actually subject to a genuine debate on the subject. What these what, the, what their advocates fear is a genuine debate. Why would you adopt those okay, tactics? Well, I, no, I agree, and I don't I don't approve of any of these laws that are trying to outlaw the teaching of specific things. But I will say, from the view of a parent with kids in public schools, 
there is a there's a sort of feeling of frustration and anger that, that there is no way to stop this stuff from being taught to your kids. And I, what do you do? You can complain. I've complained. I have friends who've complained. And you know, when my kids brought home worksheets that's where they're supposed to talk about their, you know, white privilege and whatnot, I you can complain. It doesn't change the system. The system it is doesn't such, change your system, right? But it, it doesn't but, change your system. I, this is why change. parents parents appeal to legislators or to school boards or whatnot to to, to have these draconian overreactions. Because because they feel yes. like this has been going on for so long and they've tried to change the system. But those school board meetings that are overflowing have been effective. Those local races that hinge mm -hmm. on this sort of thing have turned yes. decisively yes. against right. this sort of thing. And if you if you try to adopt some sort of statute, you're only going to force these institutions like yours, Christine, in a deep, deep, dark blue area to hold fast to this idea as some sort of a deterrent in our ongoing cultural culture. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's true. In, in, in part, that's true. But I mean, so what we're talking about, yeah, is that is that case by case, school by school, school district by school district, this is going to be subjected to the real world testing of, of, of how much parents are willing to take. The what happened here, what has happened, and I, I I'm sympathetic to the, I'm obviously ideologically sympathetic to the the force behind it, but is that this stuff was removed from there and taken into state legislatures, which simply used it as 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 the as the latest, um, you know, a pol polarization right. political weapon, because, political yeah. weapon. Uh, and it's it's kind of more important than that. And I know that's a weird thing to say because nothing is more important than politics in a politicized time. And you, you know, but but it is kind of more important than that. And and it is desperately necessary that these fights take place at the school board level because if 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 they happen with um, uh, voted on by politicians in state houses who actually have who haven't read Derek Bell and have no idea what they're talking about and simply know that, you know, they heard something who heard something and they're, you know, someone came to them and, and they can't defend it. They don't know why they're against it or for it, except that liberals like it. And that is a terrible, terrible way to win an argument. It's the worst possible way to win an argument. And it makes you want to wash your mouth out sometimes. And if you actually feel like you got a bad taste in your mouth, I'm going to recommend quit mouthwash. I'm recommending quit mouthwash. Fill in the blank, you guys. Brush, floss, then what? If you didn't say rinse, you may not be getting a complete clean mouthwash. Key part of your whole mouth's health because it gets between teeth to kill bad breath germs and help strengthen enamel. Thankfully, the oral care experts at Quip created a super simple way to make mouthwash a part of your daily oral care routine. You love that clean, minty, fresh feeling you get from mouthwash, but those plastic mouthwash bottles, not so much. They're big, they're bulky, they're not so nice to look at, and that's why probably a lot of us end up stashing them under the sink, and it's pretty hard to kill germs or help prevent cavities from down there. But those oral, expert, oral care experts equipped created an alcohol-free mouthwash that keeps your mouth healthy without the burn and has this beautiful, sleek, refillable dispenser sitting right on my desk right now that is easy on the eyes too. Uh, these brands selling big bulky bottles, mostly full of water and alcohol. That's not what Quip's mouthwash is. It is a four times concentrate. You add water to it. It lasts for a long time. It's very, uh, you know, it's very easily uh, taken care of and put away and it, um, and there's no alcohol in it. So that's, that's in fact really great. Uh, so look, 
This perfect finishing touch to your complete oral care routine, you should pair it with a Quip electric toothbrush for adults and kids, one of their refillable flossers, and you'll be surprised at how easy and how fun it can be to keep your whole mouth healthy. Add that mouthwash refill plan to your Quip plan and make sure your rinse never runs out with a customizable subscription. You can get refills automatically delivered straight to your door every three months. So if you go to getquip.com slash commentary five right now, you can get $5 off a mouthwash starter kit. That's $5 off a mouthwash starter kit, which includes a refillable dispenser and a 90 dose supply of Quip's four times concentrated formula at getquip.com slash commentary five, the number five, spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash commentary and the number five Quip, the good habits company uh okay so um can i uh point out that again uh we have uh around 10,000 we're we're under the 10,000 case number and uh uh for the second straight day uh uh when is anthony fauci going to declare the pandemic over Okay, I'm singing the Jeopardy theme song now because everybody should write down a day number on, like, on a pad. We can uh, reveal it. How about Is this like Price is Right rules? <laughs> oh, even if you go over, if you go over, you uh, well, I mean, we won't know, right? But um, I'm going to go with never. I think they have decided that never is the answer. That they will never, having said that, that uh, we need to defeat it. That any effort to say that we've defeated it itself. Uh, will be seen as by a certain type of person as being wildly irresponsible because then you're just going to let the variants spread and you're not going to make sure the kids get vaccinated and blah, 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 blah. And so uh, it'll never happen. And there's uh, always a new variant to talk about. Now it's the Delta well, variant. But not right now. I mean, this is the second time you brought up his name and I do a quick Google search to see where he is because he's been, you know, he talks 24 hours a day, seven days a week to anybody who's willing to talk to him. And where's he gone? I, can't, I haven't heard a thing from him in in like a week. He's not doing the media rounds anymore. He's tending to his OnlyFans account, I'm sure. Because he, do, he doesn't, uh, whoa. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wow. Okay. I enjoyed that. That was, that was, a, that was. Sorry, a listeners. I liked it. Um, uh, I don't know. So just. Help me out here. Um, will Biden say the Will Biden say the pandemic is over? Uh, no, no. You can you can see why they do seem to be gearing up. Well, no, I mean they do seem to be gearing up for this July Fourth like liberation and local situation. local politicians. I mean, in places like New York, there's there've been a lot of social media like "Look at us, New York's back, baby," and pictures of them at concerts and whatnot. I then, mean, that's been happening. But then you have the UK model where Freedom Summer was abruptly canceled. For, right. for, for a pretty piddling amount of cases, given the the vaccination rates in the country, but but look, you at know, the, maybe that's maybe the pressure is just too much to bear. They have a month left to backtrack. But did you see how the the G seven leaders greeted one another? Elbows, elbows, yeah. and masks. Yeah, they're all and all their families and all their husbands and wives are vaccinated. Elbows. But at the but at the tea party so, later with the queen, none of them had masks on. This, okay, this kind so, of, this so, so they're modeling. What is it that they're modeling? This right. is what I don't understand. Well, no, but we are now getting again. We are getting to a point where we have to ask ourselves: What is the obligation? the The general social obligation toward the unvaccinated. 
Uh, my uh, friends of mine who are involved in this effort, not, you know, uh, doctors and things like that, are worried about variants. The idea is not enough people are getting vaccinated. Variants can break through. Maybe even these won't break through, but something will break through. Something will will uh, test the efficacy of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines in a in a way that is worrisome. Uh, and, uh, and we're just, you know, this population is out there and they need to get vaccinated. And I'm saying at some point they are not going to get vaccinated. At some point you have to say it's out there. We're on track for 70% of adults over 18 to be vaccinated because we're, we're already at like 65% with one shot. Uh, if people just, you know, get the first shot over the next three or four weeks by July, you know, whatever, by July 4th or July 15th or something, we'll probably be around 70%, at least partially vaccinated. And by August 1st, 70% fully vaccinated over 18. There is very little risk for people under the age of 18 and we'll be done. And then the fight's going to be how, and there's a very weird piece in the Wall Street Journal this morning about how it's, it's, um, it's constitutionally unacceptable for colleges to mandate that students uh, be vaccinated by, by the fall. Really? They this have to get you... all kinds of... Well, it's the emergency yeah. use issue, right? Like if, it, if it's approved by the FDA, then they can mandate it as they mandate many other vaccinations for college students. If it's still under emergency use, I don't think it's legally... I legally think they're right. They can't mandate it if it's still under emergency use authorization. Well, I mean, they're private institutions, legally schmeagly. They're private institutions. They can say, you know, they're allowed to... That was a to... liability issue then, Right. I don't know. They they can they as we know they can rescind they can rescind admissions for somebody for a TikTok they made seventy two years ago. <laughs> so I don't see why they can't rescind an admission. Uh, on the people don't have a legal right to be at a private college. The thing that is getting to me is that the anti COVID vaxxers have been perpetually looking for a fight that they're not getting. No one is demanding that they do this thing that they're saying people are demanding that they do. No one is changing the face of the culture and the society to be a, a you know, a sort of like a, a two-tiered vaccine system. It's not happening. And they go on and on and on. They are un- there. It's like, uh, you know, the joke, like, how do you know if someone's vegan or something? They'll tell you. Um, they are, they're like, <laughs> yeah. they're like, they're like vegans. I know. know. And, 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 the maddening part is that is that um, they don't want anything, right? So they don't want the vaccine, and they don't want masks, and they right. don't want nothing, and it's fine. And in fact, I think that the you know the arguments over you know small children and all that having to wear masks uh, in some uh, bizarre is, is itself you know oh, an argument worth having, but it's not worth having this argument with an adult. I'm sorry. So wear your mask or don't wear your mask. I don't care. Right. I don't care if you get COVID. I don't care if you die. It's that simple. So die or don't die. I don't know you. If you're related to me, I would be unhappy if you died from COVID. If I'm not related to you and this miracle has happened that can keep you from getting COVID and you get and you don't do it, then fine. Don't do it. Don't ask me to care. And also, don't ask me simultaneously uh, I mean, this is, I wish there were a two-tiered system. How about that? I wish there was. You know, like, I, I spent hours, I spent days d- 
desperately trying to get an appointment for myself to get vaccinated. I got vaccinated early. I got, I was done. And then I'm, you know, I'm still like riding the subways in New York having to wear a mask because of you. So I mean, the sentiment, the sentiment you're, I just want to say it is the mirror image of the, the left wingers who scream about some massive system of oppression that doesn't exist. Right. This is the this is the, the the right populist version. They have they have now, now figured out their now, own. Yeah, I got to attack somebody. Go ahead, go ahead. Just because it's right, just to lean into the right populism thing, because you, what you're describing is a tendency almost exclusive to the right. You're not talking. There right. is plenty of people on the left who who dislike vaccines, right. but they're they're double masking, triple masking, never leaving their house again. Um, that's so that what you're describing is a right wing philosophy, but it's not a conservative philosophy. It's the decline of the idea that personal responsibility is a virtue and a value and one to which you you should subscribe. It is this populist idea on the right now that society is responsible for your lot in life, that society needs to change to accommodate your, your personal conditions, your beliefs, your values. Um, And it is, you know, one of these, one of these things that we should be lamenting about the decline of conservatism as a, as a principle and a philosophy. Uh, can we speak about the uh, the repulsive and repugnant Andy Slavitt, uh, who uh, somehow mysteriously was relieved of his emergency position as head of the COVID response under Biden? Uh, we were informed that he basically was only there temporarily and had to leave and for some reason or other. And God only knows what the hell that's about, because people don't leave administrations when they just started. Um and I'm glad he's gone because he's disgusting. And he went on; uh, he was disgusting for a year on, on, on Twitter uh, before uh, before Biden became president. And um, he was on CBS this morning yesterday and uh, and announced that um, the pandemic wouldn't have wouldn't have been as bad as it was if Americans quote had sacrificed a little bit more because you know. Avoiding social interaction requires a certain amount of sacrifice and change. In many respects, being able to sacrifice a little bit for one another to get through this and to save more lives is going to be essential in the future. That's something I think we could all have done better on. You know what? Go blow, you (laughs) asshole. I mean, this country suffered a 34% drop in its GDP because people sacrificed. You know, people sacrificed plenty. And 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 the notion that that uh, that uh, you know that the, the the attitude that he is expressing, which I think is a is a common one among people like him in the sort of I don't know what you would call it. Kind of, he's not really a public. I'll tell you what it is. It's the, it's the the left wing media ecosystem that broke into television programming to say that some people weren't behaving responsibly during social distancing and masking periods. And of course you would hear about those people because they were the exception to the rule. They were a novelty. That's why they were new. Right. But what I'm breaking the programming to tell you uh, the vast majority of people are behaving responsibly. Except for the people who were fighting about uh, against racial injustice in large crowds all summer, they were also behaving responsibly, even though they weren't following the same guidelines that existed a week earlier. Well, I mean, yeah, go ahead. I, I just wanted to say one thing, which is that our overlords declaring that Americans didn't sacrifice enough should be thrown into a pit of a volcano and burn up. Because who the hell is Andy Slavitt to say something like that about this country and what it went through over the last year? But especially because how many of our overlords were caught not sacrificing while while telling the rest of us to sacrifice? But see, that's a good... 
yeah, caught, yes. you know, at their nail salons and fancy restaurants yeah. and vacations and wherever else. While, yeah. while, while telling the rest of us to sacrifice. And, for the and that's, that is such an important point in terms of the, the scolding, the sort of elite liberal scolding of the so-called average Americans behavior during this pandemic, when their own leaders themselves so doubt about the messaging of public health professionals by ignoring it repeatedly. That that is actually something worth discussing and thinking about before the next pandemic or the next demand that that either public health professionals or elected officials are going to have to tell us how to behave. I yeah. mean, that that strong libertarian instinct that Americans have is a healthy thing in general. It it veers off into populist extremes sometimes, but it doesn't do it without reason. And I do think that the media ecosystem working in conjunction with very poor public health messaging during this pandemic led more people who would otherwise are like, stay off my lawn into, I'm not going to do anything you say, because I don't trust at all. Look at, look at Nancy Pelosi getting her hair done, but I have to triple mask and not leave my house and my kids can't go yeah. to school. And this is why, by the way, the lab leak hypothesis investigation is so centrally important to the future. Here's why. Andy Slavin, and a lot of these people are saying things like, look, this is just the first of many such occasions we are going to be called upon uh, in 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 our pandemic future to do to perform these sacrifices that we performed this time, and that is only true as I said last week. I think here, if what happened was a naturally occurring phenomenon in which this thing passed from animals to humans and was not a gigantic lab accident, because. If this is something that is the result of changes in our ecosystem, then yeah, we better prepare to be in this kind of weird place where we fold up and and disappear and then come back and fold up and disappear, which is actually the plot of The Three-Body Problem, the most impressive science fiction novel of the last 20 years by Lushingen, um, where literally a, a, a culture faces uh, an unstable atmosphere and the people um, uh, draw, uh, dehydrate themselves, become uh, go totally somnolent, and then when the when the atmosphere restabilizes, they basically pop back to life. And this this, this is was written fifteen years before you know before COVID. Um, but if it's a if it's a leak, if it was a human accident, then no, our 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 ecosystem hasn't changed. Something specific happened that can be prevent that can be prevented in the future. Another shuttle isn't going to blow up once you know that the O rings were responsible for the shuttle blowing up because you can fix the O rings. And if you have a, a you know if you have labs that are doing stuff like this, either you stop them from doing them. Or you make sure that they're at the level four and not they don't have different levels where this stuff can happen. And that changes everything. But Andy Slavitt and Fauci and these people, because they are overlord, they want us to feel like what happened here was a dry run for something that is going to happen uh, you know, in the future. And they may just be totally wrong and also kind of a little jazzed by the idea that they themselves, like the rehydrated people of the three body problem, can pop up again to boss us around and tell us what to do and 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 close down and close down economies. And with that, let me just talk to you guys about stamps.com because are you still going to the post office? You can again because COVID's over. But if you are, 
you're still paying full price for postage, stop doing that because thanks to stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, pay less, a lot less with discounted rates from UPS, USPS, and more. Stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours, tons of money each year using the services of the United States Post Office and the United Parcel Service right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, shipping out orders, or just navigating this hybrid work life. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. No wonder over 1 million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 66% off UPS shipping rates. Stop wasting time. Go to the post office. Go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in commentary. That's Stamps.com. Promo code commentary stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Boy, I'm in a I'm in a feisty, crappy mood today. Uh, I'm insulting people and being ad hominem left and right. And I, I uh, does anybody want to like talk a little nicely while I calm down here? Uh, because I, I feel like we need Abe, the dulcet, soothing tones of Abe's wisdom right now. Yeah. I think that's what our lesson. <laughs> I insulted vegans. I insulted <laughs> anti-vaxxers. I will. What 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 dulcet soothing tones are you talking about? You got nothing for me? Okay. No, Noah, Noah, you're a you're a more responsible person than I am. Yeah, but that's not gonna be fun. It's <laughs> okay. not entertaining. Everybody wants to hear the you know, energize John. Okay. Keep John. That's what they like. That's what they like. They like Abe. They want more Abe. That's what we know. They want more Abe and they love Christine. And me, they could uh you know, they could uh they could do without. That's what I think. Anyway, it's a pleasure to talk to you guys as ever. We'll talk again tomorrow. For Abe Christina, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>